Open your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you were to ask a politician, what are the greatest perils and fears that we have in our world? And they would say things like poverty. They would say things like starvation. Social injustice. And so on and so forth. But we have the God of heaven telling us what the real perils are. If you were to ask a minister, what are the greatest perils threatening Christianity? You would hear Islam. You would hear and be disgusted. Poverty. Social injustice and starvation from many, many pastors. You would hear about the rise of Mormonism and the Jehovah's Witnesses and how quickly those two cults are growing. But what does the Word of God have to say? Here are the perils. We've covered two. We have 17 more to cover in a few minutes. 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle wrote his ministerial understudy Timothy with some of his final words. And said, This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men, not men of the world, but Christian men. For Christians shall be lovers of their own selves. They shall be covetous, and they'll be boasters. We have a few minutes. Let's go quickly through these other traits. What do we want to see in these traits? We want to recognize that God says these things are perilous. That means they are dangerous, hazardous, threatening, and will destroy your soul, your family, or this church if we do not fight against them. These things would be allowed by a modern brand of Christianity that would not take a stand and does not take a stand on the Word of God. We must fight every one of these things. Boasters. The Bible cannot stand boasters. But if you're going to start out with loving yourself, which is the first peril, doesn't it make sense that you're going to end up boasting about your accomplishments? Have you ever heard a so-called Christian athlete interviewed on television? I want to thank the Lord. Oh, and you get goosebumps. He's on national television. I want to thank the Lord for making me such a great person and giving me such fantastic abilities that are better than anyone else I play with. And by the time you get done with such a statement, you wonder, was the, did the Lord get any praise from that? Right. You know, that is a backdoor compliment and flattering themselves, though they're claiming to thank the Lord. You know what I mean by those things. The Lord hates boasting. We're not even to boast of tomorrow, because we don't even know what a day is going to bring forth. And how can we boast of anything we have or we are when 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, it was all given to us anyway? By the God of heaven, where there's no room for boasting. The largest churches in the country love to boast of their size, love to boast of their growth, love to boast of their acres, and love to boast of the money they wasted on their facilities in which they meet. These results-oriented programs love to boast. We want to be against all of that. Do you know what it says about the Lord Jesus Christ? He did not raise His voice in the streets. When he did a miracle, he said, make sure you tell no one of what I've just done. What an example. You would have thought 
He'd have wanted everyone to tell about his miracles. But he was showing us a pattern of godly ministers, and they do not talk about themselves. I'm sick of reading Christian books in which Christian men want to tell you on the flyleaf of the book how great they are. That they graduated Phi Beta Kappa. Why do they want to tell you that? Because they're filled with arrogance. Why do they want to tell you that? That doesn't add to the validity of their words at all. This is the only thing that adds to the validity of words. Why do they want to tell you that they read a book a day? I'm speaking of two men. I'll go ahead and give their names. Peter S. Ruckman, a Ph.D. and a graduate of Bob Jones University, and Stuart Custer, another graduate, they love to boast about their intellect, intelligence, and book reading. It's not going to help you a bit to read books. It's going to muddy your mind. Show me someone that reads the Bible every month. But why would you brag about anything when you write a book and put that on the back? Why do they want to call themselves Dr. Peter S. Ruckman, Dr. Stuart Custer? Why use the title when the Bible says not to use such titles? And they use it themselves, let alone be called that in the marketplace. Boasters. There is no place for that in the church of God. What was Paul called? Our beloved brother Paul. 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Diotrephes loved to have the preeminence in 3 John verses 9 and 10. And John said he was praying against that man. It's our solemn duty to hate boasting. Let's be like the Apostle Paul who said, I am less than the least of all saints. Now that's pretty low. I am less than the least of all saints. Ephesians 3.8 Are you teaching your children that? We don't need boasters among our children. We need humble, modest children. Proud. You know, if you're loving yourself, you're going to be proud of yourself, right? That's called self-confidence. I'm confident in myself, and it's pride. If there's one subject this Bible hates, it's pride. It was the sin of the devil in the beginning, and it's been a problem ever since. Pride will keep you from humbling yourself before the Word of God and obeying Him. I've preached on it before. I hope you'll remember it. We want to be like Moses, who was the meekest man on the face of the earth, though leading the nation of Israel, and though it being his rod that did all those miracles by the power of God. He still was the meekest man on the face of the earth. He still prayed for men when they rose up against him and wanted to stone him. What a man. A humble spirit. The Apostle Paul, running himself ragged through the Roman Empire to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ at no charge to anyone. He sowed tents to provide his way. Today, they're so proud of their accomplishments. Instead of being lowly servants, they're puffed up reverends and puffed up doctors. We don't want to have any puffed up attitude about any part of us. We don't want to think that we've got a handle on the truth. We want to beg God to show truth to His little babes. It goes on to say, blasphemers. The God of the Bible, who is terrible in His holiness, has been replaced with a pitiful little God of their own making. Jokes, anecdotes, stories from football games, and other ridiculous Sources are used in the pulpit rather than the pure Word of God. Every sort of foolish device has been added to Sunday schools. They sing happy birthday and act 
in church many times like they're Girl Scouts around a fire. Pastors mud wrestle with pigs, paint their hair purple, and do the chicken strut if you'll win a Sunday school contest for them. It's disgusting. Contemporary Christianity is an outline that lists all of the inventions they've added that we studied a few years ago. Churches will carnally cancel the evening service to watch the Super Bowl. There's a holy God in heaven, and He says He better be worshipped acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Blasphemers. The way they talk about God. When you hear a joke about God, about heaven, about St. Peter, or about anything like that, shut them up. They're opening their mouths on subjects they have no right to open their mouths on. If we're going to talk about God, it should be of most, in the most sober, serious, and grave way possible. It is not a joke. There is nothing, there's no joke about heaven or hell. There's no joke about meeting the God of the Bible. Right. Euphemistic swearing, taking the Lord's name in vain. Directly or indirectly with careless speech. We want to avoid all of that. And so there's a religion that's going to, a Christianity that's going to come along that's going to allow, allow blasphemers a frivolous use of God's word, a frivolous use of God's name, a frivolous use of spiritual subjects. We want to be sober. We want, we're going to look old fashioned. We're going to look Neanderthal, but we're going to look biblical. God help us. We have to fight this. And you know that you get sermons on these subjects. You know that we could preach a full sermon on each one of these and have in the past, don't you? But we're just reviewing for you to examine your own souls, examine your family, and keep this church by fighting against these things. It says disobedient to parents in verse 2. There would be a breakdown of authority and it would occur in the churches as well. You go into the average church today, the little children are unruly, unbehaved, do not listen to their parents, and the older ones are rebel teenagers. Most Christian families today cannot keep their teenagers. Their families are dysfunctional messes, and that ought not to characterize the people of God. But when you're listening and reading books like Benjamin Spock's Child Rearing Manual and James Dobson, what do you expect? You get that result. We have got to preach the whole Word of God. We've got to read the Proverbs and not compromise them. They can say, kids, you can't beat them. And it's church people that go put posters out like that. We understand what the Bible says. Kids, you better beat them. And the beating is in the sense of a loving discipline provided by a father that loves them dearly and knows that if he doesn't discipline them, they're going to cause themselves trouble, pain, and early death if he doesn't stop their foolishness. Disobedient to parents. You know how long we could go on this subject. In the Word of God, what does the Bible say? It's a capital offense. You curse your parent, capital offense. Roll your eyes at your parents, capital offense. Hit your parents, smite them, capital offense. Disobey your parents, capital offense in the Word of God. What kind of a death? Well, I like the way Proverbs 30 and verse 17 puts it. The eagles of the valley will pluck out their eyes. That is not a pretty sight to see a little ch- a child laying on the sidewalk with an eagle and its great beak 
and its talons ripping out the eyeballs of a child. But that is the picture God gives us. Now, I know to even say that, it sounds terrible in this panty waste of feminine generation, but it's the Word of God, and we've got to stand on it. Discipline your children. Luke, I like the way you're sitting back there. Because you got a great big dad that's got two great big arms wrapped around you. And in this church, children are going to, diso- are going to obey. And we're going to enforce obedience. And we're going to preach the whole counsel of God. But there would be a generation of Christians coming that wouldn't do it. Do you wonder when it's going to happen? Or are we there? there. We are there. Unthankful. I so much appreciate the men that got up today. We had less time, but they wanted to get up, and they're going to get up. Because in this church, you're going to get opportunities to be thankful. We want to be a thankful church. I can tell you one thing about the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. It's to give thanks. Because 1 Thessalonians 5.18 tells us that. We're going to be a thankful people. But is this generation and the Christians that you encounter, are they unthankful? Complainers? Whiners? Begrudging things? Wishing they had more? Covetous? It's It's a disease. Let's be thankful. It doesn't matter that your circumstances in here might be less than someone else's. There's still so much to be thankful for. You've got an inheritance coming. You know, if you had an inheritance on earth that you could only have for a few years, that would keep you happy. But an eternal inheritance from God your Father doesn't make you happy. We should be forever thankful. No matter what He does to us. What if He took away everything we have? We're stripped naked and put in the inner prison. Can we sing with Paul and Silas? Unthankful. Are your children thankful? When someone does something for you, listen, don't just read that and think about Benny Hinn. By the way, he doesn't fly a Learjet, he flies a Gulfstream. Forgive me for not getting the higher priced plane involved earlier. But to, when it says unthankful, it's not enough just to think about unthankfulness outside these walls. Are you a thankful person? Are you thankful for your job? Thankful for your family? Thankful for your circumstances? Thankful for salvation? Thankful for the Word of God? Thankful for the brethren in this church. Unthankful is a mark of a degenerate brand of Christianity. Unholy. They do not consider the things of God holy, pure, sober, sacred, to be protected, to be honored, and to be lifted up. They live carnal, worldly, fleshly, lustful lives instead. You go read Numbers chapter 15. A man was picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. I know we are not under the Sabbath. And if any of you have any questions about what I wrote in my email on Friday, see me about it so that I can explain. I will not impose my liberty or my lack of liberty on the Lord's Day on you. But I will fight for a little bit of honor to be shown the God of heaven and His Son Jesus Christ on His day. I do not want us going out of here and using the extra block of time to pursue your little fancies. Because that is to be unholy. Because to worship God acceptably with reverence and godly fear is not to go out of here and play a football game and forget everything you heard. There needs to be a difference made between the holy and the profane. And I will tell you who was given that job. It's the ministers God puts over people. Because there will things come up in every generation where a difference needs to be made. We need to be a holy people. In Numbers chapter 15, he picked up sticks on the Sabbath day. All Israel put him in ward and said, Moses, they they put him in prison. 
He was in the detention center. Moses, what do we do? This guy was out picking up sticks in the Sabbath day. Moses said, well, let's ask the Lord. This is Numbers 15. You know what the answer was? Stone him. You say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. Wrong. That is the God of the Bible. God hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is a holy God. Do you know what the cherubim and the seraphim and the four beasts that are saying right now around His throne? Holy! 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 Lord God Almighty! That's what they're saying right now. We have got to be holy. Do you know what they did after they stoned that man? God said, I want you to add a blue fringe to all of your garments. You've got to go read Numbers 15. I want a little blue fringe sewn on the bottom of all your garments so that whenever you walk through the camp of Israel, everyone's going to see that little blue fringe. Every girl is going to grow up knowing she has to sew a blue fringe on. Every boy is going to grow up knowing that his outfit needs a blue fringe on the bottom of it because God is holy and He expects to be worshipped that way. And He stones men that pick up sticks on the Sabbath day. That's Numbers 15. Without natural affection. Verse 3. Without natural affection. Now we, I could preach a sermon on without natural affection because there's, a lot, there's lots of things that men do that do not show natural affection. But this is primarily sodomy. This is a confusion of the sexes because when you read the New Testament and you find the other expressions that are similar to this, it's describing sodomy. Do we now have a brand of Christianity in this country that ordains lesbians, ordains faggots, endorses same-sex unions? We have churches doing this. Churches doing it. Or churches that no longer preach against sodomy. The Bible condemns it as an abomination in both Testaments. And it better be preached against. And we want there to be a difference in our families. Little boys are not little girls, and little girls are not little boys, and the two of them shouldn't grow up doing the same thing, and they shouldn't wear the same clothes, and they shouldn't act the same way, and they don't have the same roles in marriage. If we break down on that, we're going to go down the tubes as a carnal Christian church, and we can't do it. We've got to hold the line and fight sodomy. The whole world is proposing and promoting sodomy and same-sex unions. We've got to fight it. Without natural affection. Is that applied in your whole home? Does the wife show the deference, reverence, and obedience to her husband? Because that's how you show it in your home. There's no one in here that's a sodomite that I know of. But we want to show a difference between the sexes and the difference that God made. And we want to preach it boldly and plainly. If we don't, down we go. Because the natural affection of how a marriage works is the husband is in charge and the wife is his helper. His submissive, cheerful helper. Truce breakers. No regard for peace or unity. Truce breakers. What is great in the kingdom of heaven? A peacemaker. The opposite of this. A truce breaker is someone that you can't make happy. They're always finding fault with someone. They're striving and fighting with many people. They hold bitterness. They hold grudges. Truce breakers. They cannot have a truce and keep it. They cannot make peace. And yet the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is for us to be peacemakers. 
if all of us will work at being peacemakers. And the Bible says that we ought to endeavor to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We should work at it all the time. But when that's given up, and you're allowed to have cliques in a church, you're allowed to have feuds. Do you know there are churches with running feuds longer than a generation? There are churches with cliques that disagree with each other. There are churches that have members that hate each other. We can't allow that in here. It's not, that's not New Testament religion. That's not Bible Christianity. We need to make peace. Truce breakers. False accusers. Those that slander others and try to destroy their reputations. I've preached on it before. Whole messages. Backbiting. Whispering. Tailbearing. And slandering. False accusing. Evil surmising. How's that? There's six that are found in the Bible that are about the damage you can do to others' reputations. And they'll allow that. They won't preach against it. You know, where are the men left to get up and boldly, plainly, Bible terminology and with Bible severity blast these 19 sins? Because they're common. Is it easy to let drop a sentence about someone else that kind of puts them in a bad light because it puts you in a good light? That's a temptation. We've got to fight it. We've got to preach against it. Remember, Paul to Timothy. Timothy, this is what's coming. Preach the Word. Don't you back off on false accusations. Incontinent. Incontinent is an undisciplined person. Incontinent medically means you can't control your bladder or your bowels. Incontinent spiritually and morally is that you don't rule your life. You can't control this. Does it sometimes get out of control? I know more about it than you do. Does this thing sometimes get out of control? How about your thoughts? How about your appetites for drink, for food, for sex? All of it's under the word incontinent. That word is used in 1 Corinthians 7.5 where it says that husbands and wives ought to have frequent sex lest Satan tempt you for your incontinency, your inability to rule yourself because your sex drive is rising without it being satisfied. Incontinent. We have an undisciplined generation. Young people cannot deny themselves. If they feel the urge, they do it. If it's money, they spend it instead of save it. If it's sex, go ahead and do it. Casual sex instead of waiting for marriage. And on and on it goes. If you're unhappy with your marriage partner, divorce them. Incontinent, unable to restrain themselves, ruling their tongue, they'll say anything. They'll blow off at their parents. We cannot allow that. The Bible teaches a disciplined religion where men guard, rule, and control themselves. Paul said, I keep my body under. Lest when I myself, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. The Christian religion is a disciplined one of self-denial. That sounds a little boring, Pastor. You've got 400 plus other churches in Greenville that won't preach on the word incontinent. It's all, it's all I can say to you in the way of answer. It's the Word of God. We have an undisciplined, lazy, selfish, self-centered, impulsive generation that doesn't rule their spirits any longer. We have got to oppose that. Not only out there, we have to oppose it in here. We have to oppose it in here. In our souls. For those of you listening that can't see my 
motions of my fingers. Fierce. Peril number 13 is Christians will be fierce without basic kindness and gentleness. There is no place for harshness in, the, in Christ's religion until we are opposing sin. But it doesn't involve opposing each other. And we don't resort to harsh measures against those that hold false doctrine. We only use godly methods. You know, the Roman Catholic Church was kind of fierce for 1260 years, wouldn't you say? Burn the heretics, I've heard said. Burn the heretics. Who said that? Flame in the Wind, a movie that you can watch and see our good brother Jeff Oley as a monk demanding that a believer be burned at the stake. The, the Catholics were kind of fierce. We want to be gentle. Do you know the religion of the Lord Jesus Christ is a religion of gentleness, meekness, kindness, tender-heartedness? Toward enemies? Oh, the Lord Jesus wasn't gentle toward Pharisees, but He certainly was gentle toward Mary Magdalene's, a woman taken in adultery, Peter, after he denied Him three times, and a whole lot of other situations. But we should be characterized by gentleness, and we should promote it, especially among ourselves. Despisers of those that are good. If you try to live a holy life, what's the average Christian going to tell you? If you come in in a modest skirt, I mean a truly modest outfit, ladies, and you go to some Christian function of the average Christian church, what are they going to say to you? Are you Amish? Are, are you a Mennonite? Your church requires you to dress like that? Despisers of those that are good. So the woman that dresses right gets despised. What about the wife that serves, obeys, helps, and reverences her husband? You let him walk all over you like that? Where does that come from? Christian women in our city. Over and over. I know about it. You should all know about it. You're not going to let him treat you that way, are you? A Christian wife in an office says, I need to call home and ask my husband. What do you mean? Why do you have to ask your husband? You shouldn't have to ask your husband. Your partner's in your marriage. From Christian women. Despisers of those that are good. There's a woman trying to be an obedient wife in the marketplace and being run down for it. The Bible tells us to be lovers of good men. Titus chapter 1 and verse 8. They despise good men. Traitors. Unfaithfulness to their duties and to their commitments. Traitors. Christians joining labor unions and opposing a master. God gave all the rights in a business to the master. The employee has one right. Quit if you don't like it. Quit. That is a traitor to the company that gave him a job because the reason he's an employee is because he's not smart enough and he doesn't have enough capital to build his own business. And God expects him to honor that master. But he's a traitor when he strikes against him. How about a traitor against the government? God put us in this nation. He put our rulers over us. We may not personally like them, but they're God's appointees. We will defend them and we will honor them. We will not be traitors in a national way. Because the Bible tells us not to be. We will not joke nor make fun of 
nor ridicule, nor despise our leaders. We cannot be traitors in any sense of the word. You can't be a traitor on the job by purloining and stealing from your master. Remember? Titus chapter 2, 9 and 10. Not purloining. Not small thefts that you think amount to nothing. But if all employees did it, it would amount to something. It might amount to another week of vacation that the master would like. And guess what? Since he's the master and you wouldn't have a job if he didn't exist, he deserves that extra week of vacation. Right. Not being a traitor. Heady. Rash. The word heady means rash or impulsive. It means to be headstrong or to fall headlong down a cliff. Not consulting the Word of God, but just making decisions without consulting Scripture. The Bible tells us in a multitude of counselors there is safety, not in speed. In the fact, the Bible says, He that hasteth with his feet sinneth. Speed is not a sign of intelligence. It's not a sign of wisdom. Caution and circumspection is a sign of wisdom. What is circumspection? Looking all the way around in a full circle before you make a decision. Asking a multitude of counselors before you do something unusual. This is the Word of the Lord, and we teach it. We do not teach that a church has the right to make some innovative change in their worship without the Word of God justifying it. You don't get to go to grape juice because someone doesn't like alcohol in the Lord's Supper. That is a heady decision, and we don't make them. And we preach against it. High-minded. Lofty opinions of themselves. Since we've already dealt with pride, let me mention another aspect of this. That they can change the Word of God. There has been, for the last 100 years in this country, a word-faith movement. It was started by E.W. Kenyon. It was kept up by Kenneth Copeland and others. Benny Hinn does it. It's called the word-faith movement. While they're preaching, these guys, and I've mocked them a few times in your sight, will say, I'm getting a word of wisdom. And they'll come out with some new crazy doctrine. Those doctrines are listed, for examples, on the links on the document that is now on the website called Tongues Have Ceased. It's the Word Faith Movement. They will make up doctrines or they will preach doctrines that are given to them by devils while they're preaching. Instead of going to the Word of God. There is no additional revelation to this Bible. This Bible, it says of itself, it is the more sure word of prophecy, and it's the last statement God has made about how we're to worship Him. High-minded to even think that they could do such things. We want to be like Solomon and David. Solomon saying, I am but a little child. We want to be like David that said in Psalm 131, I have not exercised myself in matters too high for me. High-minded men like to dive right in and think that they can pontificate on such matters. Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Does that describe our nation? Lovers of pleasures. We are a pleasure-mad, pleasure-obsessed generation. You children have never done anything compared to generations before you. When was the last time you milked a cow, Andrea? When was the last time you gathered eggs? When was the last time you made butter? When was the last time you washed clothes with a washing board? You have it so easy. And so the prosperity God's given us is a blessing. I'm thankful that you haven't milked a cow and that you can go buy your milk. I'm thankful that you haven't had to make butter, but that you can buy it. I'm thankful that you've got a washing machine. I'm thankful for those things, but do you know what it's created? 
a generation of people that are obsessed with recreation, entertainment, Hollywood, television, games, and having fun all the time. And if there is any, any interruption to their fun, something is wrong in my life. If I can't have fun all the time, something is wrong. And I've got to get rid of it. And so the churches of this country have brought all the fun inside the church so that they don't have to go without it. They make the services fun by getting rid of preaching. They make the music fun by bringing in a rock band. They make the youth activities fun by taking them all swimming at Myrtle Beach for a week. The youth groups of churches, or Panama City, if they've got a few more bucks for gas. That's disgusting. Where are the sober, godly, young people of a few generations ago? That's what we've got to fight and oppose. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. There's not a one in here that is not tempted with this. Pleasure is always fighting against God in our hearts and our souls. May the Lord help us. These are churches that are doing it. These are Christians that love pleasures more than God. There is nothing wrong with enjoying the good things of life. 1 Timothy chapter 6, 17-19, Paul told the rich that they should be thankful that they can enjoy richly the good things God has given them to enjoy. Right. However, those things should always be second to seeking the Lord. What do you enjoy more? Golfing or reading the Bible? A football game or praying? Where are your priorities? Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. They go to church, they sing, they pray, they call themselves Christians, they get baptized, they have the Lord's Supper, but they don't have a changed life. When you meet the average Christian today, in the marketplace, on the job, you can't tell he's a Christian. Their mouth is the same, their clothes are the same, their activities are the same. You can't tell the difference. And there ought to be one. Because... If we're going to have a religion, the religion of Jesus Christ, then He is the Lord of our lives. He can tell us how to talk. He can tell us how to think. He can tell us how to dress. He can tell us how to date. He can tell us our parents ought to be involved in our marital decisions. And on and on and on, and I've preached it before in a sermon entitled, Is Jesus Lord? The Lord Jesus Christ has the right to dictate every aspect of your life. And if you don't think He does, wait till you meet Him. In one second when you meet Him, you'll know He has the right to dictate every single thing you've ever thought, said, or done. And you'll wish you could go back and give Him that position of Lordship. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. The word power there does not mean that they're Christians, but they deny that God is able to open the Red Sea. The power here is the authority or the right or the rule of that religion to dictate how you live. And the Christian religion has a right to dictate how you live. I read in Acts chapter 19 that when the Apostle Paul preached in the city of Ephesus, they brought all their books of witchcraft. There were boxes of Harry Potter novels that they brought and threw in a pile in that city. And the value of all those books was 50,000 pieces of silver. And it says, the Word of God prevailed and grew mightily. Do you know why it prevailed and grew mightily? Because there was more than a form of godliness. There was real godliness that affected their lives. These are the perils that will destroy 
our church, our families, and our souls. These are the perils that we must fight against, and we will fight against. These are the perils we want to pray against and work against in our own homes. What did the apostle conclude with? From such, turn away. Timothy, whenever you encounter a ministerial association, or you encounter other churches that are starting to allow these things, turn away from them. Get away from them because they're going to destroy your testimony. They're going to destroy the gospel. They'll destroy your church and your ministry. There is no room for us to associate or fellowship with these kind of perils. These are dangers. This is the threat to our church. This is the threat to your family. You want to have a great family? I mean a great family. Like Abraham. Like Joshua. This is your mandate. You don't need to turn anywhere else. This is far more detailed than any other single passage of Scripture. These 19 things. Fight those 19 things in your home and you will have a great family. You will have great children. Anytime we have compromised those 19 things is when we have reaped the consequences. And don't we all know that experience, parents? It's those 19 things we want to stand for. There can't be fierceness between our children. There can't be unthankfulness at our table. I don't care if the wife fixes liver and cold peas. If it's liver and cold peas, the children ought to be thankful that they have something to eat. That the God of heaven has been so kind to them for a wife that would even deal with that stuff. I mean, see kids, I'm on your side too sometimes a little bit. But we still need to be thankful. My wife knows how to fix liver. I made her fix it once a week when we were first married because of its high content of iron. And she was pregnant all the time. So we had liver once a week. She learned how to put it in Italian breadcrumbs and it was awesome. She'd pound, pound the stuffing out of it before she did that. But it was, it was good. Listen, from such turn away. People ask us, why are you so isolated as a church? Don't you have any other churches? I get letters every week. I get letters every week. Can you tell me of a church in my area? No, I can't. Because we've turned away from those other kinds of churches. May God help us to continue turning away. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.